Welcome to our podcast about challenges and opportunities on the path to a sustainable Queensland. Today, our speaker is the Interim Queensland Chief Scientist and Deputy Director Science of the CSIRO's Land and Water Business Unit, Professor Paul Birch. In his lecture today, Professor Birch examines science and technology trends and challenges as Australia moves towards a population of 50 million. He covers topics including technology drivers, the circular economy, synthetic biology in sustainable food production and the COVID-19 pandemic. We hope you enjoy this Grand Challenge lecture. I would like to uh, also begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on uh, today across Queensland and probably across Australia, and also acknowledge them as our first scientists and engineers and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I also uh, need to take this opportunity to acknowledge the uh, absolutely incredible times that we're going through, extraordinary times. Uh, and I thank everyone online for participating aggressively and uh, in terms of uh, self-isolating uh, and really getting the uh, spread of the virus under control. So uh, uh, you should all be con congratulated. And, and I know it's a very difficult time for you and your families, and um, I really wish you all the best. Okay, so as um, Carrie mentioned, I'll be speaking about challenges and opportunities uh, on the path to a sustainable Queensland. The area that's oftentimes called the perfect storm is thinking about the food, energy, and water trilemma, uh, or more generally, the environment trilemma. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, as we go through, because it's not just about water, but it's uh, more broadly about the uh, environment. And of course, this is largely driven by population growth. We were thinking, uh, based on UN estimates uh, uh, before, uh, right around 2010, that we would largely be leveling off at about 10 billion individuals by mid-century uh, and then decreasing at the end of the century. However, more recent uh, demographic analysis has suggested that we're likely to be closer to 12 billion by the end of the century with actually no uh, indication that uh, population will decrease uh, by the end of the century. So, so this is a huge challenge uh, going forward, of course. And the other big part of this challenge is, is that the resources per capita are increasing uh, quite rapidly. I mean, the good news is that uh, uh, wealth is increasing uh, in the developing world. So the good news is that wealth is increasing, but also our expectations in terms of energy use, uh, uh, food type, the types of food people choose to eat, et cetera. So you can see the increases uh, that will be required in energy, uh, food and water just by 2030, and they go up uh, much more dramatically by 2050. Uh, and I would like to just take this opportunity to apologize on behalf of my generation's inability to take action uh, on the climate change as well as the global change landscape uh, over the past uh, 20 or 30 years. So one of the big things that's driving it is is changing land use. And uh, essentially, the way I think of it, we just have uh, three 
major uh, compartments of land use. We have the natural and managed ecosystems. We have agroecosystems, which are also managed ecosystems, but specifically for food production. And then we have the built environment. And the tension is between all three of those, of course, going forward. Uh, and the numbers of people uh, uh, require a greater expansion of agricultural lands or have uh, traditionally, uh, as well as uh, the growth of, of, of urban centers. Uh, so one very important uh, piece of, uh, of data is that 50% of the Earth's uh, ice-free land uh, surface has been transformed. Um, that's largely as a result of uh, agriculture. Uh, another interesting piece of information is about 35% of all anthropogenic CO2 released in the atmosphere since 1850 uh, is a result of land use changes, and again, primarily from agriculture. So one of the uh, areas that have been defined uh, for many decades now for food production is this idea of sustainable intensification. That is, how do we produce 50 or uh, closer to 70% more food by 2050 uh, on the same amount of land? Uh, and the term for this is called sustainable intensification. It's, it's using uh, management practices that intensify uh, agroecosystem management and uh, get more food produced uh, in the same land area. Now, while we've been re referring to this uh, term sustainable intensification, there's very little evidence that we can actually achieve it, uh, particularly in, in the agroecosystems at scale that are responsible for uh, feeding a large part of the world. And of course, uh, these are all connected to the climate system. And uh, so you can see again, the natural managed ecosystems uh, and the ecosystem services and biodiversity and human nutrition, health and well-being. So I should say also that uh, the sixth mass extinction that we're currently experiencing, uh, which is the fastest in terms of rate of extinction uh, compared to the five previous ones, uh, is again, largely uh, a result of land use change. And so I would uh, indicate that uh, more broadly, sustainable intensification needs to be actually applied to everything we do uh, in society. Another um, really fascinating uh, challenge, uh, as well as an opportunity, is sustainability in an ever-urbanizing planet. It was uh, 2007 when, for the first time in human history, more individuals lived in urban environments uh, than in rural, env rural environments. And today it's uh, closer to 53 to 55% uh, living in cities. But the trajectory is, is, is quite uh, uh, significant, going to about 68% by 2050 and uh, closer to 85% by 2100. And of course, uh, I'll say something about this with regards to uh, our situation here in Australia, because we are among uh, the most urbanized countries in the world currently. We're 87% population live in urban centers. So that's a, an important thing that I think will become relevant going forward in terms of things that uh, we've learned that we can potentially share with the rest of the world. But we also have our own challenges there. Another thing I would uh, just wanted to point out is look at some of the numbers in terms of urbanization. So 3.2 billion additional people in cities by 2100. Um, that's mostly cities of a million, requiring 3,200 cities of a million people over 89 years. That's remarkable growth, uh, but it also leads to tremendous opportunity in terms of a sustainable future if we can think about getting smart cities and sustainable cities embedded uh, into our uh, culture going forward. Another uh, interesting th piece of information that I uh, find uh, fascinating is that 25% of the world's protected areas uh, are within less than 20 kilometers of a city, uh, which is quite remarkable. Many of you may have seen this image 
of Mount Everest uh, um, last year, just showing the number of people in an area that was uh, once considered uh, quite remote. And I should say that the pandemic story is actually linked to land use change as well um, and to climate change. And that is that uh, as land uh, use has changed, uh, obviously the, the dynamics between human wildlife contact uh, increases, uh, the, the decreasing in biodiversity also uh, is linked uh, to increases in zoonotic uh, pandemic diseases. So there is a, a clear link there in terms of uh, environmental change, uh, which uh, is, is quite critical going forward. Another interesting uh, piece of information is that um, um, a few years back, there was about 250 million ecotourists per year, and this is expected to double by 2025. So what this leads to then is, uh, as many of you that uh, are familiar with ecology uh, would know, that uh, we're moving towards uh, uh, ecological tipping points. And that is where uh, systems, uh, where the ecological systems change abruptly and, and in, in most cases uh, irreversibly uh, and therefore unable to pr provide the ecosystem services uh, that actually underpin Earth's life, life support system. And so this is quite uh, a critical challenge for us going forward. And uh, it's looking more and more as though uh, multiple tipping points are be being reached uh, simultaneously. And so uh, a huge challenge for us going forward. The, the good news um, is that there's also technology tipping points. Uh, and these technology tipping points are going to provide us uh, with opportunities to think about how we actually engineer uh, ecosystems, engineer resilience uh, into our systems um, to help uh, preserve ecosystems into the future and preserve our uh, own local environments. This uh, uh, World Economic Forum survey was of 800 thought leaders and business leaders around the world, high-tech business leaders around the world. And just a few things that they expected to actually emerge by uh, 2025, um, I have some of these highlighted 10% of people wearing clothes connected to the internet, uh, first 3D printed car in production, driverless cars uh, equaling 10% uh, of cars in the US, uh, the first transplant of a 3D printed uh, liver, uh, and the first AI machine on a corporate board uh, of directors. And there was a whole list of these, but uh, very uh, good consensus amongst a lot of these thought leaders in terms of uh, some of these er uh, these tipping points that they expected would, would actually arrive. And so uh, I'll talk about some of the opportunities that uh, these new technologies will bring in terms of actually thinking about a sustainable future. Another really interesting uh, change, of course, is the introduction of of sensors and sensor technology, and then, of course, big data. So um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, the Internet of Things. Uh, and it's, it's envisioned that by 2025 or 2030, there'll be as many as a trillion sensors uh, in the economy, which will change our world and, and change our ability to actually uh, manipulate uh, our world around us and, and hopefully um, introduce a whole host of uh, sustainable management of our of our local systems. So I'll come back to some of these technologies as we go forward. And finally, uh, I would like to mention, uh, in addition to uh, the ecological tipping points and then the technological uh, tipping points, which will help us mitigate against reaching ecological tipping points, there's also social tipping points. And there's a lot of research going on in terms of social tipping points and how quickly societies can actually change. Just a few examples uh, here, but I think the important thing is that um, uh, this particular pandemic 
the issues around this pandemic uh, could in fact uh, be a, a catalyst for a, a social tipping point. And there's quite a bit of discussion around this globally. And so this will be imp important to watch going on as well. But if you look at all these tipping points come together, then uh, there's a lot of um, discussion around positive tipping points. So this is uh, getting a, a shared vision of what a, a new system uh, might look like uh, a system that people would buy into uh, and actually then think about achieving that vision uh, through either behavioral changes, consumer changes, uh, and changes in their, in, in their otherwise, um, in their consumption behavior. And so there's a lot of work going on uh, there as well about uh, uh, positive tipping points and some of the feedbacks around positive tipping points. So how this comes, uh, so that's the global perspective. And of course, we're fitting into a global perspective. And I just wanted to talk a bit about Queensland's emerging knowledge intensive industries. Uh, this is the New Smarts report that was uh, commissioned by the Queensland government, Data 6.1, uh, who uh, in CSRO, who, who conducted it. And they looked at uh, strengths both in the R&D sector as well as uh, traditional strengths uh, in the state, as well as the uh, alignment of our workforce and emerging workforce, uh, and uh, did identify eight areas uh, in Industry 4.0 that they uh, believed would be uh, quite important uh, uh, for Queensland going forward in terms of being a differentiator and a strength for us. I actually think of circular commodities and cyber physical security um, as underpinning. So they'll be underpinning uh, each one of these other sectors. So I don't really see that as a, a industry per se. I mean, there are industries, but they're industries that are actually uh, going to push the other sectors uh, to reach new, new, new goals in terms of um, being implemented of uh, implementation of industry 4.0. So you look at sustainable energy, advanced agriculture, next generation aerospace technologies, advanced materials and precision engineering, personalized and preventative healthcare, uh, and smart mining and exploration and extraction. Because as you uh, are, are well aware, sustainable energy, for example, uh, is underpinned by strategic minerals uh, so that the extractive industries will have to go on uh, to fuel our sustainable, our shift to sustainable energy. Uh, and this will just take smart mining and, and much more sustainable uh, extractive industries going forward. So these are great uh, opportunities for us uh, as a state. Uh, and they also then uh, fit in quite well to what we see as an emerging circular economy. Uh, and you, you're probably well aware of the concept of circular economy, but it's really looking at uh, thinking about how we can close the loop uh, in terms of our inputs and outputs. Uh, and there's been uh, some predictions that the drive of the circular economy will likely be reward vertically integrated companies uh, with business models that uh, are based on raw materials, extraction, processing, and recycling. So through the whole uh, circular uh, economy framework. And just as just a little tidbit here, last year, Apple expands global recycling programs. And in 2018, the company refurbished more than 7.8 million Apple devices and helped divert more than 48,000 metric tons of electronic waste from landfills. So we're seeing this uh, taking uh, hold and, and, and moving in directions that are, are quite positive, even though modest relative to where we need to be going. This gets to that uh, sustainable intensification uh, a bit again, although uh, what I'm gonna do now is focus on the food sector now, and then I'll go to energy sector and advanced materials sector. Um, create a sustainable future uh, by 2050, uh, which means how do we feed 10 billion people uh, with anywhere from 56 to 
as, as much as 75% more food and, and do that by not using more land, as I mentioned earlier, because land expansion um, is obviously degrades uh, uh, the planet in many ways. It reduces biodiversity. It causes oftentimes um, erosion. So soil erosion is occurring uh, roughly 12 times uh, a greater erosion than, than, than the rate of soil formation currently. Then also then, uh, so, so use that less land, but also lowering emissions. So agriculture is a, a significant com- contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. If you do total life cycle analysis, it's been estimated that, that about a third of all uh, greenhouse gases uh, come from agriculture. So that would include packaging and transport uh, and, and fertilizer production, et cetera. But it's, it's quite significant. And so thinking about how we fundamentally change our food systems will be critical going forward um, in thinking about a sustainable future. So I wanted to talk uh, again about opportunities here. And so this will be opportunities not only in the food sector, but also in the feed and fiber sector. And then I'll talk about advanced materials as well. But I I do want to uh, introduce synthetic biology very quickly uh, and advanced biomanufacturing. Uh, synthetic biology is is really bringing engineering principles to, to, to biology. And if you think of these, uh, many of the leading synthetic biologists in the world uh, actually are engineers. And their feeling was that if they couldn't build it, they couldn't understand it. And they started to then actually design and construction of novel nucleic acid encoded biological parts, devi- devices, systems, machines, and organisms, and engineering them to produce uh, materials. So produce, and I'll go through uh, examples as we uh, in, in a moment, but it's the application for u- useful purposes going forward. The important thing here uh, is this breakthrough was really the Human Genome Project, which uh, took 13 years. Uh, it, was, it was concluded two years ahead of schedule. It was originally proposed to be a 15-year study at a $5 billion. So it was done under budget at $3.5 3, uh, uh, billion. But the really interesting thing here is how quickly uh, the price uh, and the efficiency of reading DNA uh, has has developed. So it's about it's much faster than Moore's law, which is uh, uh, indicated here by the straight line. So you can then imagine that uh, it cost essentially three and a half billion dollars to uh, sequence the first human genome. Uh, at the end of the human genome project in two thousand in two thousand three. Uh, it was esti- it w- would have cost about a hundred thousand to um, sequence a human genome, and today it's a uh, thousand and 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 heading towards uh, the hundreds of, of dollars. And in fact, sometimes there's specials uh, by um, some of the companies that uh, are in the two hundred dollar range. So we're seeing this uh, develop very very rapidly. But the other really interesting part uh, that a lot of people don't really pay attention to is is writing DNA and how uh, quickly we're get and how much more efficient and price effective we are at actually writing DNA code, which is very important for uh, synthetic biology, which is really the design. So um, a a lot of it's in silico design, build, test, learn, and go through iterative cycles. So I'll give you some examples here then uh, of advanced biomanufacturing. This is through precision fermentation uh, for uh, feed, food, and fiber. And there's a number of really uh, interesting companies out there. And this is really ushering in 
the uh, a circular economy in many ways. Uh, spider silk uh, has uh, emerged as a very important uh, fiber uh, that is used in garments. Um, spider silk has incredible properties. It's it's, it's um, as strong as steel, uh, more flexible than Kevlar, and it and, and it breathes. And so there's a whole host of companies that are uh, beginning to utilize spider silk um, both as a garment uh, as well as um, for other um, for other applications that I'll talk about uh, on the on the next slide, there's a company, a German company called AM Silk, and I'll talk about them in the next slide with regards to advanced materials. But they're actually uh, producing spider silk running shoes for Adidas, which comes with a an enzyme that at the end of life uh, you put the shoe your shoes in in your um, kitchen sink with the enzyme, and they dissolve uh, within 24 hours. Many of you may have heard about the Impossible Burger. Uh, we're, we don't have those here yet uh, in Australia, but uh, they will be here soon. Uh, but the Impossible Burger, uh, again, is uh, it's a plant-based protein burger, but they actually ferment uh, through this precision fermentation. So again, this is engineering organisms, in this case yeast, to make uh, leg hemoglobin, which is very similar to the hemoglobin in our blood, but it's a plant-based hemoglobin, which gives the uh, very interesting qualities and of, of, of a plant-based burger that uh, is, is almost indistinguishable uh, from beef, and many people think it is indistinguishable from beef. There's a company called Perfect Day that's actually, uh, what they've done is engineered yeast to make milk proteins. So they're actually making cow milk proteins. Uh, they have used an AI, uh, AI ML platform to uh, limit the number of proteins uh, that they actually study to introduce in their milk, since there's many hundreds of uh, proteins in milk. I th their list now is about 50. Uh, they can eliminate proteins that are known to be that are known to be allergenic, for example, and uh, produce milk and then the downstream cheese and, 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 and ice cream. And their ice cream is, is currently on market. Their uh, cheese is going to market and their milk is going to market. They've signed contracts with some of the large uh, food companies like ADM, and again, this is all through fermentation. So very efficient in terms of water use, uh, nutrient use, uh, and again, very precise in terms of the material that, uh, or the proteins that are used in the end product, so the, the final milk product. Uh, and there's the research frontier here is really thinking about uh, how do these proteins, how do you optimize these proteins uh, for health outcomes? So for example, uh, actually optimizing for your uh, gut microbiome. There's another company called Wild Earth that's actually making dog food, but you can imagine that this could be feed for um, uh, animal agriculture into the future as well, which would be much more efficient than uh, growing uh, large, uh, large hectares uh, uh, of grains to feed the animals. Um, and again, very, very uh, sustainable. In this case, with the uh, with the dog food, they they have a chief veterinary officer who again makes uh, certain that the nutritional value uh, of these dog foods are uh, just as. Uh, well-balanced in terms of amino acid uh, distribution profile as red meat, for example, uh, but also very healthy and, and not containing a lot of the contaminants that you would find in, in dog food, such as uh, traces of antibiotics, hormones, and sometimes uh, even various drugs uh, used in euthanasia. 
just a few other examples here, and, um, and this is not all fermentation. So there are examples I mentioned of fermentation, but there's also cell-based, uh, cell culture-based companies that are uh, beginning to emerge. So Finless Foods, for example, that uses cell cultures uh, to grow up uh, bluefin tuna and, and, and other fish. Um, Memphis Meats, which actually uses cell culture to grow up uh, uh, red meats. So while this then, uh, these, these meat substitutes uh, aren't vegan, like uh, the plant-based uh, uh, meat substitutes, uh, they they are quite sustainable and don't involve uh, issues around animal welfare. So a lot of a lot of advantages there. Um, there's a company um, called Solar Foods, one of my favorite ones. So what they did was uh, build on it. Uh, a NASA Innovation Challenge grant that challenged uh, scientists around the world to come up with uh, ideas for creating food in space. And they took a, uh, uh, an extremophile that uh, uses hydrogen as an energy source. So it uses hydrogen as, as an energy source, fixes CO2 from the atmosphere, uh, and then produces a protein called solian, which is 50% protein and, again, uh, uh, extremely nutritious. Why they're called solar foods is because they use solar, uh, solar pa- panels to generate uh, the hydrogen through electrolysis. The hydrogen then goes to the bioreactor, uh, and, again, the product is actually produced by fixing CO2 from the atmosphere. So really incredible uh, new technologies that are that are emerging. So in terms of SynBio and advanced biomanufacturing, um, why Queensland and why do we uh, sit as a, as, as a state with uh, a very high value proposition to companies that are expanding rapidly who see uh, the Asian emerging markets in Asia and India in their strategic uh, uh, business models? The one thing is uh, you have to feed the organisms that you engineer and sugar is oftentimes a feedstock and as you're probably well aware, we produce about 35 uh, tons of sugar a year. Uh, we're one of the largest producers in the region. And we're serv- those sugar regions are also serviced by uh, uh, ports for, for exporting. Uh, and then, of course, the knowledge base is uh, is there. We have very, very strong life science expertise um, uh, across Queensland, but particularly here in Southeast Queensland, largely arising from significant investments of the state. Uh, so through the Smart State Initiative in Advanced Queensland, there's been well over $6 billion invested in uh, capability, which would include infrastructure uh, and mines. So uh, just people uh, that and that's been happening over the past two decades. So, so this is this long-term investment has is really put us in a position uh, to be able to pay off uh, going forward. So, the area here in the southeast uh, corner of the state, I call the Sunshine Coast. I mean, I'm sorry, the uh, DNA Coast uh, that would go between the Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast, including Brisbane, and then we have our production corridors where the sugar is and the uh, export facilities are world-class export facilities. So, there's um, a report that came out. Many people think it's uh, it's quite um, it's quite radical, but I think when we look around and see what's actually happening, um, while it might be on the extreme side, uh, it's certainly foretelling where we're likely to be going. And the idea is that it took millennia to domesticate macroorganisms, uh, such as cattle and sheep, etc. cetera, uh, but it'll only take decades for the second domestication, which is actually domesticating single cell organisms uh, to actually be used in these bioreactors and these fermentation systems to produce uh, alternate meat uh, products uh, and ultimate protein products that can be made into many different uh, 
materials. And one of the things that uh, I think is, is quite important is that uh, the, they conclude that we're standing on the, the cusp of the next great uh, revolution in food production. New technologies will allow us to manipulate these microorganisms uh, to a far greater degree than our ancestors uh, could possibly have imagined. And this is going to unplug uh, microorganisms entirely from um, uh, and harness their directly the superior qualities that they have in terms of actually producing things. So this is pretty exciting, actually, and to, to think about it, because if you, if you think about these fermentation systems, they use a fraction of the water. So very, very efficient, obviously, uh, very, very little land relative to the production of, uh, say, beef cattle or, or, or lamb, for example, or even um, large hectare uh, crops. So, so there's a tremendous opportunity here. And so this is rethinking the food and agriculture. Um, and there's a question of have we reached peak meat? And that was actually in the Finn review. So it's actually meeting, it's actually hitting the uh, mainstream press out outlets. And they did some economic modeling in this, in this report. And they estimate that the cost of proteins by 2030 will be five times cheaper um, and 10 times cheaper by 2035. So as the uh, R&D gets translated and, and the scale up um, uh, continues, the price of these protein sources are likely to drop precipitously. And so, so the, the red line here is actually fermented and this is the uh, cell culture uh, meats and fish. So really one interesting um, uh, survey was looking at would, how, how would people think about accepting these alternate protein uh, sources going into the future. Uh, and they did global surveys. Uh, and it, see, it's, a, it's, it's low in the U.S. compared to China and India, 32.9%. Uh, China being uh, much higher, of course, and India being very similar. So our Asian and, and subcontinent neighbors are, are very open to this compared to, say, for example, the U.S. But I should say that the data did have demographic differences. That is, younger people were much more open to it uh, than older people. And so this is an important uh, element here. And of course, China and India both have much younger populations than uh, some of the more mature economies in the world. Another really uh, interesting survey in my, in my view is this, that six out of every 10 Argentinians are considering giving up beef and, and, and going uh, vegan. Uh, and this was actually a recent study by the country's Institute for Promotion of Beef. And so there's a, a real push and, and that's economically driven uh, largely. You may know that Argentina has had hyperinflation and the costs of, of meat uh, are, uh, and other goods are increasing very, very rapidly. So, so the idea that the, uh, this is a, a cost-effective way of going. Secondly, uh, there is interest in uh, understanding the influence and the impact of agriculture uh, on environmental systems, uh, as well as uh, the health benefits. So all three of those are actually beginning to emerge uh, as important elements in terms of people choosing what they might eat in the future. One other thing that I see as a, as a really uh, outstanding opportunity, uh, again, for uh, great efficiencies. And also, I should mention that all of these food production systems, are, of course, are climate proof. Uh, so if you're in a fermentation system, that would be climate proof. And these indoor agricultural systems uh, are climate proof as well. And the 
vertical farming uh, when it first started was was driven by startups, but these companies are now maturing very quickly. This company, uh, Plenty, uh, is expanding uh, globally, as is AeroFarms, and um, they're setting up production facilities around major urban centers. Uh, and this is happening very, very quickly. And what it allows is, um, again, very uh, high use Water, water use efficiency, good, uh, absolute, absolute uh, uh, high efficiency for nutrient use and capture. So you're not having uh, nutrients leak uh, into our into the ecosystems and causing the uh, problems that they do. And it used, many of these systems utilize LED lighting that are now optimized for, for growing. So you get more crops uh, in a cycle than you would uh, using uh, even a greenhouse or, or certainly uh, growing in fields. The Dutch are, are way out uh, in front of, of, of a good part of the world in terms of research and development in this area and actually moving towards those types of production systems, including animals. So they have indoor chicken production facilities. Um, and for egg production, for example, they even char- change uh, day lengths to uh, get double the egg production uh, in a given day. So you can begin to see that um, these opportunities emerge uh, that are energy intensive now, uh, certainly, and will be energy intensive into the future. Uh, energy use goes down as LED lighting gets uh, more efficient. But more importantly, as we move towards zero emission energy sources, that's where that nexus is. That if you get a zero um, emission energy source that's affordable, then it really makes producing food in this way, uh, very, very attractive, particularly if you factor in to the uh, upside uh, relative to the environmental outcomes. Here in Australia, we have a a fabulous example, a company called Sundrop, which is in South Australia, um, just inland from Port Augusta. They use uh, solar farms um, to actually uh, power their indoor agricultural systems. And their first product was tomatoes and they produce 15% of all the tomatoes consumed in, in Australia. Uh, and they source exclusively to sol- to coals at the current time. So solar powered hydroponic greenhouses, again, um, not using soil. So these are soil less, uh, the fresh water is reclaimed from uh, brackish water sources. So they're actually using desalination, uh, to provide their water source. So there's sitting out in the desert, uh, being able to produce, uh, significant um, amounts of, of tomatoes, and now they're moving on to a whole uh, host of other uh, high variety fruits and vegetables. I just want to say a few things about advanced biomaterials uh, because I think this is really important. Some of these will also be fermented, and some of them won't. In in, in terms of these examples, there's partnership between Amaris, which is a large synthetic biology company, and Michelin, and there's others, uh, for example, Goodyear and DuPont have a um, have a relationship where they're actually fermenting rubber and making uh, bio-based uh, uh, tires, uh, which is really exciting, I believe. I, I mentioned about AM Silk uh, earlier, that uh, German company. AM Silk, um, their product called BioSteel um, is actually, they've partnered with Airbus, and they're actually looking at using uh, this bio steel, which is spider silk that's mixed with a, a biopolymer, uh, to actually, um, uh, be able to make skins for, for, uh, aeroplanes. So this is just uh, really, uh, quite remarkable. And I should say that, um, uh, silk like sequence is actually 
shape barnacles permanent adhesive. And this is just another example of where there's a number of companies uh, trying to develop these um, these protein mixtures that are involved um, in adhesion of barnacles. And if anyone's ever tried to get a barnacle off the bottom of your boat or off of something else in the in the water, you'll just realize how incredible these adhesives are. That they're actually laid down in the water, and uh, they're virtually they're virtually permanent um, adhesives. And so there's a lot of work going on in that area as well. So there's tremendous opportunity. Bolt threads. I talked before that they do make uh, spider silk um, um, garments, uh, but they also make a leather product that is, is made out of uh, fungal mycelia. And uh, the, the, their product is called Milo, and they are actually making a high-end handbags for, for all the uh, uh, designer handbag producers. And they're trying to move the production down more into uh, higher volume materials that can then be used uh, in more common uh, household uh, items. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on there. In terms of building materials, for example, hybrid materials, a lot is uh, really developing quickly in this space. Um, out of the University of Colorado, uh, they're actually making bricks out of a cyanobacteria. So cyanobacteria is a photosynthesizing bacteria. So it's fixing CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, it's using um, nutrients that are provided to it uh, with a matrix of, a, of another biopolymer uh, that sets up into uh, uh, bricks that are as strong as, as cement. Uh, and it's because the cyanobacteria actually mineralize uh, calcium carbonate uh, and with the polymer matrix uh, actually form a product that's very similar to cement. The interesting thing is that uh, they can actually self-replicate as well for at least three generations. So really exciting stuff going on there. There's been a lot of work with uh, self-healing uh, cements, for example. Why this is important is uh, cement production is responsible for about 8% of greenhouse uh, gas emissions globally. Uh, and so com coming up with a bio-based alternate uh, building products uh, going forward will be really important. And these other hybrid materials are, are really interesting as well. This is a bacteria that actually um, uh, conducts electricity through gold nanoparticles, uh, as well as uh, has LED lighting properties through, um, through quantum dots. Uh, and uh, these are self-replicating uh, and then it also, um, they've been actually used to construct circuits that are self-healing. So, so incredible uh, opportunities going forward. Many other um, advances coming out with a bamboo resin uh, component that's as strong as uh, steel in terms of rebar. A new process, relatively new process, that was just published um, a couple of years back in Nature, hydrothermally treating wood to remove uh, hemicellulose um, as, as well as lignin, and, and it, it densifies the wood, uh, causing these uh, hydrogen bonds between the microfibrils of, of cellulose. Uh, and again, uh, six times lighter than steel with the properties that are as strong as steel. So incredible um, developments there as well. And fungal bricks that grow stronger than concrete. So I just wanted to say a few words about the low con uh, carbon economy as we go forward. A transition uh, will be a major challenge. 
but it's also a great opportunity uh, for all sectors, but the mining sector is, is, is one particular one. Uh, one area that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, uh, but one that we have a significant strengths, and of course, QUT has significant strengths in, is in autonomous, autonomous uh, vehicles, and, uh, and, and this is, uh, you know, uh, an area of, of significant development uh, uh, here in Queensland, but across the world, of course, and in the mining sector, that's becoming uh, really significant as well. Just a few things about transforming the energy system. Uh, I see that's another critical uh, part of, of the equation, of course. So we transform our food uh, production systems. We come up with advanced materials uh, and, and alternate foods, uh, and we transform our energy systems so that we have uh, abundant, relatively low-cost uh, zero emission energy sources. And of course, renewables um, uh, are growing very quickly. Uh, and this just showing the uh, solar in installations here in Queensland. It's it's quite remarkable how quickly solar is coming on. Still have a ways to go, of course, but wind, solar are really important. Uh, thinking about uh, energy storage, so battery systems, and also the proliferation of, 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 of solar farms. Um, here in Queensland and, and more broadly across Australia. Many of you may be aware that hydrogen is another um, energy source that's not only, uh, of course, sustainable in the future, but one that's driven by growth in Europe, Japan, and Korea. And there's study after study that shows how well-positioned Australia is to take be a leader in hydrogen production. And of course, here in Queensland, uh, actually, tapping into our production of onshore gas and all of the infrastructure around on onshore gas that can then be modified uh, for hydrogen production. Again, QUT is a leader in this area. They've uh, taken le leadership in, in a hydrogen pilot plant that's uh, being built with uh, industry partners. And this is very exciting. This is out at Redlands. And the concept of having hydrogen hubs that uh, have clusters of industries around, around them that actually use uh, hydrogen as a zero emission energy sources, extremely exciting uh, going forward. And again, uh, in this case, instead of using storage batteries, you use hydrogen itself uh, uh, as a storage uh, source. So the, <clears throat> and so when the sun's not shining, you have uh, hydrogen storage cells that then are still uh, producing energy. You may know that uh, we have a national um, hydrogen strategy, uh, but Queensland was the first state to have um, a hydrogen industry strategy, and uh, it, it kind of lays out the opportunities, but also a roadmap for how we do uh, go from where we are now to being a leader in, in, in hydrogen production going forward. So one thing I did want to bring up is uh, getting to zero emissions is, is really hard work, and uh, there are numerous uh, recent studies that all come to a similar, similar conclusion, uh, and this is in the global context, and, and that is that nuclear is vital to decarbonization going into the future. And I think one of the things that's uh, quite interesting is the emergence of new innovative technologies in the nuclear space, uh, what, what are known as uh, fourth-gen uh, nuclear power plants uh, that solve the problems of economics, solve the problems of uh, associated with safety and solve the problems associated with waste. And there's a whole host of these startups that are advancing very rapidly. And uh, some of them are, uh, are already going to pilot scale facilities. And, and, and I think the interesting thing here, of course, is you can have these small uh, fourth gen reactors 
uh, that could be used for desalination for hydrogen uh, production. Um, for example, as shown here, hydrogen production, seawater desalination, uh, district and process heating, synthetic fuels and chemicals, cooling, uh, as well as cogeneration applications. So all of the things that uh, have been t typically uh, associated with other energy sources, particularly conventional energy sources, uh, can actually be generated uh, because most of these are being integrated within the framework of renewables. And so as long as renewables are keeping up, uh, you use the nuclear, the small uh, modular nuclear reactors to uh, actually conduct these other functions. And this uh, then is really interesting because you can reimagine the nexus uh, with advanced nuclear. So desal, uh, really the water challenge, uh, which is a huge global challenge, um, is 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 no longer. And you can imagine actually desal and long-range transport of water. Uh, we we transport fuels. Um, we have an oil, for example, across continents, uh, and water will become and is becoming. Uh, more valuable uh, than even fuels. Uh, so you could you can just reimagine what this looks like. And and as I mentioned earlier, in terms of indoor agriculture, uh, both from the standpoint of um, being able to use desal, but also power uh, the indoor uh, systems and the LED lighting uh, provides a whole new way of reimagining uh, the nexus. So I wanted to uh, wrap up with a few things, but one is uh, the rapidity of technology technological adoption, because I think many people think of uh, the adoption of these uh, kinds of uh, rapidly emerging technologies as something that takes many, many decades, uh, even half a century. Uh, but the truth is, when the, when the technological advances um, are in place, and we, we have them in place now in terms of our industry 4.0 um, in, in so many different uh, sectors, uh, things happen can happen very quickly. So this particular image uh, shows Fifth Avenue in New York City on Easter morning, 1900, and you spot the automobile. There's one automobile, the rest are all uh, horses and carriages. And only 13 years later, the photograph taken at the same uh, time, Fifth Avenue, New York City at 10 a.m. on Easter morning, and it's spot the horse. And notice the increased quality in the photograph as well, just because of the uh, technological advances there. So, so in this case, we have technological um, tipping points in, in a sense of having one car that were would have been thought of as quite exotic uh, and something that only rich people could uh, own. And then uh, process uh, innovation, which then also gets the price way down per unit. And that's what's happening in so many different areas. So, for example, the uh, advanced nuclear, the fourth gen nuclear, the prices will be coming down very, very quickly because these uh, reactors are built in components in factories and assembled at a site rather than a large construction project. And I just wanted to wrap up with a thought around what, what I believe we need to be doing as a state um, and certainly as a nation. And I've uh, in my CSRO role, I've been uh, in some discussions at the Commonwealth level, but I've thought quite deeply about uh, about this and this is really getting around what is called a settlement strategy and it's actually envisioning what do we have to look like in 2050 to uh, have the high quality of life that we've come to experience uh, have high health and well-being uh, have uh, vibrant economies uh, and yet um, sustainable uh, environmental and 
and built environments. And this is really, really important. And I just wanted to point out the CSRO published the Australian National Outlook in 2019, which was funded by industry and it actually was driven by CEOs of uh, major corporations, NGOs, as well as uh, university uh, vice chancellors. And it really just did um, scenario uh, analysis, looking at integrated modeling platforms that uh, looked at all, all parts of the economy, uh, as well as the environmental and social outcomes. And the point is that you can develop these scenarios and have scenarios uh, that are actually quite positive in terms of the outcome. And then uh, this, the slow decline scenario was actually just business as usual. Uh, and it just the, the, the differences are quite remarkable in terms of things like real wages, um, as you can see here, uh, GDP growth, um, total energy use, uh, being decreased, um, the average urban vehicle kilometers traveled per capita um, in terms of reduction of 33 to 45%. So there's some really, really good outcomes uh, that, that, that can come from envisioning scenarios uh, that are different than business as usual. And I think for, in terms of the settlement strategy, it's really critical for us to be thinking very, very quickly about how we develop a vision and a scenario uh, that we want to uh, take the trajectory path uh, towards. And the reason why that's critical is that, you know, by 2050, um, it's 2050, 2060 timeframe, it's, it's envisioned that, um, you know, our population will double. So we'll be closer to 50 um, or, or even 60 million people. Uh, it turns out that if you look at what's happening uh, currently in terms of demographics, that Queensland uh, is becoming uh, a destination of choice of uh, in terms of interstate migration. So we see a net negative uh, out of New South Wales, a net negative out of Victoria, and a net positive into into Queensland. Now, interstate um, migration, of course, is a very small part of the population story. But what it suggests to me is that, and, and some of the surveys back this up, that the quality of life in, in Melbourne and in and, and Sydney particularly uh, are beginning to uh, degrade, even though they, they've been a, um, uh, cities that are amongst the most livable in the world, and they still get high rankings, they are dropping in those rankings, and those r r rankings actually lag behind uh, real indicators. And so I think the survey data and the fact that people are actually moving to Queensland uh, from those regions because they, uh, the because individuals feel like the quality of life uh, has been degrading, uh, and there's they see a much greater potential for quality of life here in Queensland. And so since our population growth will be obviously migration from other countries, uh, I, I, I propose that people will look to Queensland much like they're looking to Queensland within Australia and that we will actually more than double our population by 2050, which means we, we have to develop this vision because all of the infrastructure investments that we expect coming out uh, as part of the recovery uh, program out of this, uh, out of this crisis, uh, if they're not aligned with where we want to be, we'll be making decadal or even multi-decadal investments, uh, which will put us on a trajectory that we might not want to be on. Uh, and so we really have to think about what of our what do our cities have to look like? What are what do we need for vibrant regional centers um, that people really want to uh, be part of uh, uh, going forward? And how do we connect them both in terms of transportation networks uh, as well as um, as as well as the ability to connect them 
digitally. So, so to me, this is something we really need to think about working out sooner than later so that we are making informed decisions about what we want and how we get there in terms of the um, final state. So I just wanted to leave you with a few parting thoughts. Um, one is, uh, if, if anyone had the opportunity to see Al Gore here um, last year during Climate Week, uh, he had a quote that uh, uh, was one that I felt uh, was was really catchy, and that is that the sustainability revolution has the magnitude of the industrial revolution, uh, with this, but the speed of the IT revolution. And so again, that gets to the rapidity with which uh, these technologies may be taken up, and we may actually be moving towards a sustainable uh, future. Uh, Critical climate and sustainability challenges and ecological tipping points will drive rapid technological advances uh, over the next decade plus. I think uh, this particular crisis is going to have us rethink what that looks like. I think it'll engage people more in um, the climate uh, discussion and some of the challenges that we have going forward with uh, uh, global change. Major disruptions to virtually every sector, and this will accelerate due to the confluence uh, of the advances um, powered by the digital sensor revolution, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, enabled by big data analytics, uh, leading to an integrated technological tipping points. So we won't just have tipping points in individual sectors, but it'll be integrated. We'll see these tipping points uh, happening across all sectors. And a lot of it will be driven by the same uh, um, basic platforms. The innovative uh, uh, primary industries, uh, mining and agriculture, that have avoided major, dis major disruptions in the past are likely entering uh, or have entered a period of significant disruption driven by integrated technological tipping points, as well as a newly high-skilled uh, naive entrance. So naive entrants are oftentimes, uh, well, almost always uh, drive innovative dis disruption. And we're seeing this in, for example, the uh, vertical agriculture companies uh, that are starting up. Um, they're not people that have are traditionally trained in agriculture, for example. Uh, likewise, synthetic biology. So we're seeing uh, very rapid growth in industries uh, around the food sector uh, by uh, driven by these uh, naive entrants. And the disruptions will drive, you know, will, will drive and be accompanied by social disruption and so, social tipping points. Uh, and so it'll be really important to make sure that we get those uh, tipping points uh, positive, that we co-develop a, a vision for Queensland uh, that is a, a vision that includes uh, maximizing the health and well-being uh, of all Queenslanders, uh, making sure we have a, a strong and vibrant econ economy going forward with diversity of jobs, diversity of living spaces uh, that also accommodate um, uh, sustainable processes and sustainable systems into the future. And so part of this is uh, understanding that uh, social contracts, we have to get the tipping point right, or it's, they'll be driven by irrational fears uh, rather than rational fears. And so uh, to me, that's, that's a, a challenge as well with, the, with how we handle the transition and the social disruption that will be associated with it. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at www.qut.edu.au slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.